This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace of me. It's Monday, and a woman gets out of bed. And she sits at her kitchen table, having a bowl of Cheerios with milk. And next to her, outside her window, you can see a little bit of fog that's settling over the tops of the trees. And they're just beginning to get bare, right? They're getting ready for winter. Then a moment later, she stands in front of the bathroom mirror and she brushes her teeth carefully. She pulls out a gray cardigan from a row of identical gray cardigans hanging in her bedroom closet. And she puts it on. She puts a coat, a scarf, a bike helmet. And she bikes to work in that chill morning air. And then she returns home as the sun is setting. Not too long after, she goes to bed. Tuesday, she gets up. She has her Cheerios. She brushes her teeth, she gets dressed, she goes to work, she comes home. Just as she's done every day for a while now, and just as she will most likely do day after day. And all around her, change is happening, but she hardly feels it. And inside her little cocoon, she is safe. And then one day she closes her closet door after getting out her, her cardigan. And right there, written on the mirror, there's a, uh, a, a sign that says, come on an adventure, coffee. She stops, she stares at the sign, she looks around, no wondering who could have written it. And then she decides to trust. She decides to step forward into what she doesn't know. She jumps on her bike and heads downtown to her local coffee shop. And she goes in and she stands in line, which she never does because she usually does not go into this coffee shop. And she's only there for a couple of minutes before her name is called out. So she goes up to the counter and there's a cup right there with her name. So she takes it, she looks around, there's nobody there, nobody looking at her. She takes the lid off and she takes a little sip, it's coffee, it's delicious. So she just drinks it and she drinks it all the way to the bottom and then she wipes off a little foam off her her lip 
And then as she's checking the cup again to make sure that there's nothing left, she sees that there's something written inside the cup. And so she looks a little bit more closely and there's just a single word and it says treasure. So she decides that it's another clue. She jumps on her bike again and she bikes to another side of town, to the other side of town where there is a vintage and bookstore. <clears throat> it's called Unexpected Treasures. And so she goes in and then she starts just pulling books off the shelf one by one and then just opening and flipping them, looking for a note in one of them. And she takes one, flips through it, puts it down. She takes another one, flips through it, through it, puts it down. And she just keeps doing it. She just keeps running her finger over the spines, just looking for what it could be. And she just opens book after book. And after a while, there's just piles and piles of books around her. And the light has gotten darker. And finally, she's sitting on the floor and just kind of unsure what to do next. And she's about to give up. She's about to leave. And as she's heading out, she sees on the shelf an envelope with her name. She takes it. She opens it. And inside is a map. She unfolds the map and she sees there's a, a route very clearly marked with a big X at the end of it. And she recognizes the map as a piece of woods near her home. And so she goes there. And she follows this route. The, the trees are marked with a red ribbon. And she follows the route, she's looking at, at these different markers, and then she actually finds an actual cross on the ground, and next to it, a shovel. She takes the shovel, and she begins digging. And she digs, and she digs, and finds a little wooden box. She takes the box, she wipes it off, wipes the dirt off, she opens it, and inside is a photograph of a waterfall. She looks around, there's no waterfall that she can see, but then she sees another tree with a red ribbon on it. So she goes to it and then she realizes it's a trail. So she follows the trail all the way to the end and there she finds a um, waterfall, exactly like the photograph. And there's something behind the photograph, there's some, some kind of um, writing that she can't quite read. And she um, goes behind the waterfall, there's a cave, and at first it's really dark so she can't really see. And then as her eyes get used to the darkness, she sees propped up against a rock, a full length mirror. And so, she walks up to it and she stands right in front so she can see herself. And then she takes the post, the photograph, and she turns it. And there she sees, and she's holding it like this right in front of her. And there she sees written on it, treasure. And she starts, she gets a little teary. And there's more, but 
that's really in my mind where it ends. And this is from a from a short film that Julia, thank you, Julia, pointed um, me toward. And um, it reminded me of another story, similar but different, that I lived actually um, in a in a town near where I where we have our house in Mexico. There is a um, it's a it's kind of like an artist colony, and it's a really beautiful town. Small cobblestone streets, like all these alleyways. And um, there was always a legend, the legend of the loca, the San Miguel, the crazy woman of San Miguel, San Miguel de Allende is the name of the town. And right in the center of town, there's a hotel. And um, the story went that um, there was a local woman who went crazy when her children died very close to one another of mysterious causes. Nobody knew why. And she lost her mind. And then she would just walk around the streets, you know, in, in, in rags and um, uh, just calling out her, her children's names. And so somebody thought that the town should take care of her. And so they, they took her in and they put her in a little room that was in that... Um, uh, ground floor of the hotel, but in, in in the room, and she didn't know this. Yeah, she didn't know this. There was there was a, a window, so somebody in the hotel decided that it would be good for business and that it would help actually to support the woman to have people come and take a peek at the Loca de San Miguel and just leave a little, you know, a little money and for her sustenance. Not, not very ethical exactly, but this was what the situation was. And so every time somebody would come into town, the thing, one of the things to do was to take them to see the crazy woman of San Miguel. And you know, and you know that it's not is not quite right, but you're also really curious. And you don't want to look like a wuss if you're the one who's being taken. So so somebody tells you about this and you're like, okay, I guess I'll go. And so you go into this, the hotel is beautiful. But the foyer is really, the, 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 the side where the room is, it's really dark. And the window is really high up and it's very small. It's, it's just, um, I guess, 12 by about six, something like that. So, it, so it's small. And so you have to step up on this rickety wooden step. And then you have to, to, to kind of scoot up and you have to reach up and just get your nose just past the thing so that you can look. And then you have to really squint so that you can see into the, the room. And, you know, truth be told, if you're there, you're kind of scared, but you don't want to show it. And you don't know what you're going to see, 
but you're there. And so you kind of pull yourself together and you get on the little step and everybody else is, is around there. You just, you know, cheering you on. And then you reach up and you, you just kind of pull yourself up. And then you just peek, like I said, you know, just over your, your, your nose is just over the, the glass. And then you just step back, um, startled, and somebody has to catch you underneath because the first thing that you see when you uh, look closely is your own eyes white and big as you think you're staring into the, the face of the loca, the San Miguel. I fell for it. Number of friends fell for it. Number of my relatives fell for it. In fact, every single time somebody went, they fell for it. And you just had to really build it up. You know, and if you were really hamming it up you would do the wails of the loca that she used to do as she was walking down the street before she was you know put in the room and you would really build it up <laughs> until the person was essentially looking into a mirror they the hotel has since closed down you can no longer you can no longer visit the loca de san miguel and I was thinking afterwards, but you know, either way it applies, right? Either way, whether it's treasure or whether it's your darkness, we are the worthy ones and the crazy ones, the blameless ones and the ones who are at fault, the contrite, the defiant, the clear-eyed, the confused. All of it, treasure. And, you know, depending on the circumstances of your life, depending on what kind of opportunity you've had, some of that treasure is really polished, right? Is really, is really shiny. Some of it is quite rough. Some of it is so dark, you, you can't even see it. Daito Roshi would, would speak, well, he would speak of Sangha really as, as, um, as that um, process of polishing one another. But it really, I mean, if you think about just practice in general, you know, zazen, the precepts, liturgy, teacher-student, study, as a, as a kind of polishing, which, you know, here the metaphor breaks down a little bit because there is, it, it does have this sense of going from, from the rough to the shiny, where really you're either going from rough to rough or shiny to shiny, and it doesn't even matter. Those words don't even matter anymore. It's simply, as I've said in the past, getting out of your way enough that you can be yourself more or forgetting yourself 
so that you can be yourself fully. And that is practice, right? And that is the process of living. And that is the commitment that we're making to one another to wake up. And this commitment, you know, it's not abstract. You know, I, I take it, I myself take it very seriously. You know, that when we enter this practice space, which I believe this is, to me, it's as if we are entering a zendo. And it's, it is a little bit more laid back, but it's still a practice space in which we're being with and relating to one another. You know, and as we slowly add some of these details, like the service positions, having somebody do Jikido, timekeeper, having somebody do the chant at the end, liturgist. How we listen to one another, what we say when we speak up, you know, how we reflect one another's words with our own words. In other words, how we take care. And of course, I mean, this is true of any practice space that we enter, it's true of any space that we enter. But hopefully as practitioners that we're, we're entering deliberately that we're, we're intending to be as present as we possibly can, right? To bring all of ourselves into each moment in which our life is happening. And so, you know, I really think that it's, it's less what we're doing but the fact that we decide to do it with every ounce of our being, right? So if we are uh, sitting in this way, you know, we're coming together and practicing together in this way. We are last night, I was sitting with two of my neighbors, you know, they were just, you know, having a drink and just talking. Um, and the ways in which, I feel, you know, when I pull back, if it's not my ideal situation, you know, a couple of people are drinking, a couple of people are smoking, I'm a little uncomfortable, I mean, you know, I'm coughing. And then I think to myself, you know, just be here with them. Just be with them. We actually had a very nice time. Giving your, your, daughter you know her bottle you know the good karma that she's getting right now adam she's listening to all this dharma <laughs> she started you started her off early that's good that's why i say to marguerite who couldn't be here tonight you know it doesn't matter you know whether you choose in one sense to do sashin or to go dancing every saturday but just choose and do it fully, every ounce of your being. And she does. She just feels guilty about it. Why? It's your life. Just be there for it. 
that's ultimately what matters, that we're showing up for our lives. You know, there's too much in the world that is superficial. I mean, there's too much that is downright harmful, of course. And so, as Shugen Roshi, my teacher, says, we practice when it's easy. Here with one another, for example, right? Or with our families, with our friends, with the people we know and love. So that then we can do it when it is difficult. So that we can do it with the people that we disagree with. Whose views we can barely stand. Or those whom we see as outright harmful. You know, what does it mean in that case to say that someone is treasure? How do we not have that just be like a nice Buddhist thing to say? Yes, yes, you know, we're all perfect and complete. No, but really. You know, there's that concert that happened. I'm not even exactly sure where it was, right? And, and this artist apparently always riles people up and there was a stampede. I mean, people were getting literally trampled to death. How do we square that with this teaching that everybody is treasure from the beginning? They don't have to do anything. They don't have to prove it. They don't even have to polish it fundamentally. How is that? How is that? And, you know, people, you know, polluting the planet with people making a profit on medicines that people need. And then, of course, bringing it back, bringing it close. You know, how do we square it away with all those parts of ourselves that we don't like, that we're ashamed of? How do, we, how do we bring the whole thing into line, right? Into alignment, into harmony. How do we, when we take care of ourselves and we take care of things, we take care of one another, how do we do it like we would take care of our child, right? The Karaniya Metta Sutta says that. Like a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. But it has to start with a basic attitude of non-harming. And then with a basic intent to take care. And I've said this before, but you know, I've always thought, I've always thought that Zazen is the most loving form of self-care, the most effective, not in every circumstance, but generally, because how else will you see in the midst of this chaotic world, this often chaotic mind, that you are indeed treasure? How will you remember every time we forget? I mean, why do you think I repeat this so often? I mean, maybe I need to hear it. I do need to hear it. 
I think just like the rest of us. Because we forget and we turn away. We turn away from other, we turn away from all those parts of ourselves that we consider other. I was reading in the, in the New York Times, I don't know if you saw that about that, um, the, um, the big puppet, that 12 foot puppet that they, uh, that a, a group essentially walked from Turkey to Britain. It took a few months over the summer and it arrived um, just a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, I guess, um, in Britain. And they were walking and st stopping, um, you know, in different cities and doing different performances. And uh, her name, the puppet's name was Amal. And she was a Syrian child who was looking for her mother, right? And so this was to raise awareness um, for the plight of refugees. And, you know, she's a wooden puppet made of wood and cloth and paint. And people loved her and people hated her. And people talked to her and shook her hand and people threw eggs and tomatoes at her at what she represents. Even the Pope shook her hand. They took her to Rome to see the Pope. Well, she, he shook her finger, apparently, because it's the only thing he could reach. Very good-naturedly, the Pope met with Amal. And if you think of it, you know, we're all looking for our mothers if we, if we think of mother as home. And we run around, you know, frantically getting and doing, trying, not knowing that as that story in the Lotus Sutra has it, you know, we have the, the jewel was always sewn into our sleeves, that we were the jewel all along. And so, you know, just let me ask you this. If by some twist of fate, you happen to meet yourself on the street. And what I mean by that, I've been having this email conversation with, with someone who reminded me of a, talk, of a talk I gave where I quoted, where I referred to this movie, Another Earth. I won't go into the whole story, but essentially, the protagonist is able to one day earth appears on the sky, a mirror earth, and it starts to get closer and closer. And when they make contact, they realize it is an exact mirror image to this earth, which means all of us here now are over there having exactly or very closely this conversation. And so the protagonist is able to get on a spaceship and go to this other earth. And the movie ends where she's face to face with herself. And after I saw that, I always thought, okay, well, if I had that opportunity, what would I say to myself? 
knowing what I know now and not knowing what I don't know, what would I say to myself? What would be my advice? How would I suggest that I live? So that's my question to you. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessasvisegoddard.org.